Welcome to the Hillside Church Denver podcast, the home for content from Hillside Church in Denver, Colorado. Hillside exists to help people belong to Jesus people, believe in Jesus, and become like Jesus. And we hope that what you hear today does just that. Go to hillsidedenver.org for more information about this community of Jesus followers. And if you're in the Denver area, we would love to welcome you in one Sunday morning. But for now, on to the pod. We are in Esther. We're in Esther chapter 3. Now, um, you may have noticed over the past two weeks, and you will continue to notice, that when we come to the Scripture, we're we're not actually reading the text that we're going to be talking about, because they're whole chapters. So here's what you got to do. You got to read it before you get here, okay? Esther chapter 3. You got to read read Esther before you come in, um, because I'm going to give a summary of it, uh, but we're not going to read the whole chapter here together. Uh, There will be other scripture read, I promise. Uh, But we're in Esther chapter 3 today. Um, As we've been figuring out the book of Esther, as we've been walking through the past couple of weeks, um, we've been talking about the Jewish people in exile in Persia. That's the setting of the book of Esther. Esther is a book primarily about ethnic conflict. Now, In the world as it is today, we've been fairly blessed over the past 50 years or so um, that there have been no real major wars that involve multiple countries, large regions. Most of the conflict, the vast majority of the conflict that has erupted in the world since World War II has been ethnic conflict between people groups of one sort or another. Um, And I'm not sure if you're aware, but even just a month ago, there was a major ethnic conflict in the country of Azerbaijan. Uh, In Azerbaijan, since the early 1990s, there had been this region of ethnic Armenians who were living in Azerbaijan. Uh, This little region was called the Nagorno-Karabakh. The local Armenians called it the Artsakh region. They had declared independence back in 1993, but no country in the world ever recognized them as their own country. Well, so about a month ago, Azerbaijan decided to go ahead and take that region over. That region had been protected largely by Russian peacekeeping forces, but with Russia working in Ukraine, they were now distracted and didn't have the resources to protect Nagorno-Karabakh. And so Azerbaijan took advantage and moved in to reclaim the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. And now, about 128,000 Armenians who were living there, um, many of them, most of them, have been dislocated, lost their homes, lost their jobs, and they've moved with their families back to Armenia, to Turkey, and now those countries are having to figure out what to do with these ethnic Armenians who have been moved out of Azerbaijan. Uh, This is further complicated by the fact that Azerbaijan is a Muslim country. Armenians are the oldest Christian group in the world, the oldest Christian ethnic group in the world. And so there was that religious conflict in addition to the geopolitical conflict of this region within Azerbaijan that had declared independence. And so even now, there are Armenian brothers and sisters who are being dislocated and displaced and moved being reabsorbed into Armenia and Turkey. I have I made a new friend, a new Armenian friend at school this past uh, week, and she's very concerned that now Azerbaijan is going to try and take southern Armenia as part of their, uh, part of their own country. 
They're because Azerbaijan is bisected by this portion of Armenia. So she thinks that Azerbaijan is going to come on and continue moving and take over that part of Armenia and claim it for themselves. Ethnic conflict. If you aren't aware, if you haven't watched the news in the past few days, Hamas launched an offensive into Israel just in the past two days. So far, around 600 people on both sides have died total. So far, about 3,000 plus have been injured, and there will certainly be more as this conflict goes on. The Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, has said they are in a state of war with Hamas. This is not one of the small conflicts that they've had in the past. This is now a full invasion, and so they're fighting. Uh, I was listening to a friend of mine who is currently in Israel, was touring around. Fortunately, he's out by the Dead Sea on the other side of the country from where this offensive is taking, but listening to the uncertainty in his voice about what is going to happen with them. This is obviously a very sacred space for Christians, Muslims, and Jews around the world, and lots of people are there just visiting, there to visit their holy sites, and now they're caught in the conflict, and they're stuck in a foreign country. We've got brothers and sisters on both sides of the conflict. Just in case you know, a number of Palestinians are Christian. They're not all Muslim. We've got a number of Palestinian brothers and sisters who are caught in the conflict. We've got a number of Israeli brothers and sisters who are caught in the conflict. We've got a number of foreign nationals who are identifying as Jew, Muslim, or Christian who are living in Israel right now for whatever reason, for various reasons. This is not an easy, one-sided conflict where you can take a side and you can pick who's righteous and who's not. And so we don't, follow our political parties and just land on one side or the other. We go to the God who sees all of the complications and is only able to bring peace to this situation. So right now, right now in our world, we have brothers and sisters in Christ and brothers and sisters in humanity who are living in the midst of ethnic conflicts all over. And all that the civilian can do in this time is cry out to God, and seek peace from the only one who can actually give it. The only one who can bring long-lasting peace. And today, as we look at Esther chapter 3, we see a people who are in that exact situation. A people who are caught in the crossfire between one incredibly prideful man and one Jewish man. So we turn to Esther chapter 3. Now, we're not going to look only at Esther chapter 3. We've got to finish the chapter 2, which we started last week. At the end of chapter 2, you got the Jew Mordecai, who works in the king's palace. He works in the courts of the king. And he is, he is of some high status, high enough status, that he's able to serve the king in the palace. Mordecai is hanging out in the king's gate one day. He's hanging out in the courtyards of the palace. Now, this is where the business is done. This is where a lot of the business of the empire is handled. And as Mordecai is sitting in the king's gate, which is this huge courtyard with these monster gates that open into the palace, as Mordecai is sitting there, he hears two people plotting to assassinate the king of Persia. Now, that's, that's not a minor thing, right? And so Mordecai, with this information, goes to the officials and says, hey, um, king's officials, these two guys are planning to kill the king. 
and he thwarts the assassination attempt. And that's where we end at chapter 2. It just kind of ends there. He thwarts this assassination attempt, and then nothing really happens. And then chapter 3 begins, and it begins where the king is going to honor a man, and you would think that it would be Mordecai. When you start chapter 3 and you learn that the king is going to honor someone, you think, okay, Mordecai is going to get his just desserts. He's going to get what he deserves for saving the king's life. Only then we learn that it's not Mordecai at all. It's this guy named Haman, the son of Hamadatha, who is an Agagite. Now that matters. I know it seems throwaway if you're just reading through it. Like, what the heck? Okay, Hamadatha, Agagite, I don't, I don't understand this. Now, when Mordecai was introduced, he was introduced as a Benjaminite. That is a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin, and he is from Jerusalem. He's from Judah, probably from Jerusalem, because of when he was, his family was taken from Jerusalem. These things matter because many centuries earlier, there was a Benjaminite who was at war with an Agagite, and it was because of how the Benjaminite went to war against the Agagite that the Benjaminite lost the throne of Israel. So let me, let me, let me back up a little bit because I see the confusion on faces, right? So back in 1 Samuel 15, Saul is the king of Israel. Now Saul was a mighty warrior. We're told that Saul stood head and shoulders above everybody else. He was a good-looking man, and he fought valiantly. The Bible says that in 1 Samuel 14, that when Saul went to war, he fought bravely and fought valiantly. So Saul is kind of an upstanding guy, and he's the person everybody appreciates. The reason that he's the king is because of how he fights and how he looks. The people said, hey, that guy, he should be leading us. He's amazing. And so they make Saul the king. The prophet Samuel goes and anoints Saul. Now, when the prophet Samuel anointed Saul as king, Samuel said, here's the one thing the Lord wants you to do. The one thing that God wants you, Saul, to do is wipe out the Amalekite people. So centuries before this happened, the children of Israel were leaving Egypt on their way to the promised land. And as they were leaving Egypt and they were wandering in the wilderness... Another people group came along and made war on the Israelites. The Amalekites came along and they made war on the Israelites. So when Samuel says to Saul, hey, God wants you to wipe out the Amalekites, he says it's because of what the Amalekites did to my people during their exodus. The Amalekites came and they fought against the people of God as the people of God were just trying to make their way to their promised land. They weren't bringing war against them. They were attacked unprovoked. And God says, for that, the Amalekites have to be wiped out, Saul. And so we read in 1 Samuel 15 that Saul does this. Saul takes his army against the Amalekites. And he fights against them. Only Saul does something really wicked when he fights against the Amalekites. He kills everybody and everything except for the king and the officials and all of the treasure and the choice animals. Saul takes all that for booty for himself. He takes from the Amalekites and he spares the king, but he wipes out everybody and everything else. In fact, the Bible, the word that the Bible uses is that Saul destroyed all that was worthless in Amalek among the Amalekites. Now, there are two reasons that this is wicked. One is that Saul didn't do what God told him to do. 
God said, don't take anything from the Amalekites. Wipe them out and don't take any plunder. Just destroy it. And number two, it's wicked because Saul got rid of the worthless things. The normal people. The civilians. Saul wiped out all the things that he didn't see any value in. But he kept the things that he thought were valuable. Including the king and all the livestock and the gold and the officials who could shore up his power. You see, for God, this this order to wipe out the Amalekites wasn't about building up Saul's name or building up Saul's power or giving him any name among the nations. This was about avenging his people. Only Saul made it about himself and used it to enrich his own life. And looked out at the Amalekite people and said, you're worthless, but you're valuable to me. You're worthless, but this is valuable to me. And he valued the things and the stuff and the riches of Amalek. And so he disobeyed God. Now the king of Amalek that Saul took alive, that Saul was supposed to kill, but instead took prisoner and took all his stuff, his name was Ag-Agag, or Agog. So when we read that Haman is the son of Hamadatha and Agagite, you're supposed to read that Haman is a descendant of the king Agag, who Saul did not kill. And when we read that Mordecai is a child of Benjamin, he's a son of Benjamin, he's a Benjaminite like Saul was, that Mordecai is the descendant of Saul, or at least standing in Saul's place. So, at the beginning of chapter 3, here's the conflict that we have. We have the conflict between Saul and Agag playing out again. And that's what Esther's about. There's a long explanation to where we are now. So, when a faithful Jewish person reads this, and they read, Mordecai is the son of Benjamin, Haman is the son of Agag, they immediately think back to the conflict between Saul and Agag. And we're supposed to, at this point, now have an expectation of what's going to happen. Either Haman is going to win out and the people of God are going to be wiped out, or Mordecai is going to win and the Amalekites are going to be wiped out. The children of Agag are going to be wiped out. That's the expectation you're supposed to have walking in when you read about these two people. This is not a stretch These are the kinds of connections you would make if we really knew the Bible well and we came to this text. So we read that at the beginning of chapter 3 that the king, Ahasuerus, wants to honor this man, Haman, the Agagite. And he does. And the king orders everybody in the palace and everybody in the palace grounds, hey, would you bow down before Haman? And honor him because he's the man I want to honor. We know from the historian Herodotus that the Persians loved to do this. Persian kings loved to honor people. They loved to to hold people up and command everybody else to to honor this person. It was a way of shoring up the loyalty to the king. The king would be like, hey, if you do something good for me, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to be lifted up and honored. And so Haman now is in that position where Ahasuerus is lifting him up and honoring him. Only we learn that when everybody in the king's gate bows down to Haman, Mordecai won't. Mordecai stands there and stands firm. And we don't really learn why, except that there's this one reference that says Mordecai wouldn't do it because he was a Jew. 
You can read a lot into that, right? You could read that Mordecai is saying, you're not above me, Haman. You could read Mordecai saying, my king is my God and not Ahasuerus. This is what it would mean later for people to say Jesus is Lord. When you say Jesus is Lord, you are inherently saying Caesar is not. You're inherently saying my government is not. You're saying the people in authority over me, they are not Lord. Jesus is. This is what would get the early Christians in trouble. Because Jesus is Lord is an inherently political statement. So for Mordecai to not bow down to Haman is just like those early Christians saying Jesus is Lord. Mordecai is saying, my king ain't Ahasuerus. My master, my Lord, is not the king. It is the God who is above all. And so Mordecai won't bow down. Now this gets under Haman's skin. Only it doesn't just get under Haman's skin. As is the way it is in the book of Esther, Haman has to take this like all the way to the end. He's not like, that guy disrespected me. Haman thinks that guy and all his people have disrespected me. And now they got to die. Like, this, this is the exaggeration of the book of Esther. This is, this is how Esther, the book of Esther just takes everything to the nth degree. It just takes it all the way to its end. Haman here is not content to punish Mordecai. He's not content to just have, to have some beef with Mordecai. Haman looks at Mordecai and goes, that Jew needs to die. But you know what? It wouldn't be enough for just Mordecai to die they all need to go. He's so deeply offended in his pride and ego that he can't let things go and, in fact, has to go to the extreme. How familiar does that sound? How familiar does that sound in an age of social media where there's no such thing as moderation anymore, where there's no such thing as nuance, where everything has to be taken to its extreme and everything causes offense? This is what pride does. This is what arrogance and pride do. Pride broke the world in the beginning and pride has always kept breaking the world. You want to know what the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden was? The primary sin, the thing that caused sin to come in the world, the thing that caused the fall in the first place, it was pride. It was humanity created in God's image saying, it's not enough to be in God's image, I need to be God. I need to make the decisions. I need to make the calls. I can't be under authority. I need the authority. And so when the serpent crawled into the garden and Adam and Eve didn't guard it and keep it out, when it deceived Adam and Eve, into taking that fruit so that they could be like God, it cemented pride as the chief of all sins. My main problem is that I want to be God. The world's main problem is that people don't want to submit to the God who made them, but want to be God themselves. They want to take control. They want to wrestle control away. They want to hold on to their power and in our pride, we break the world. And unfortunately, we live in an individualistic consumer society that now has social media where we're able to sit behind a computer screen and type whatever we want and feed and fuel our pride and our indignation and our offense over and over and over, day after day after day. And this is not a young people problem. 
It's everybody. This is the circumstance we live in where our pride is fed by our media consumption and by our culture and by a society that says, go after what you want, by a society that has made us a society of little gods. And it just scratches our itches. There's a lot of talk in in our society, there's a lot of talk in our culture about being your authentic self. There's a lot of talk about authenticity as kind of the, the pinnacle of what humanity is supposed to be. You just need to be authentic. You need to be true to yourself. And that's what will that's liberate you. That's what will bring you freedom. Here's the problem. My authentic self is not the natural desires in me. My authentic self is not be being true to the way that I feel or the attractions that I have or the things that I want. I am only really my authentic self when I am submitted to Jesus Christ. I'm only really my authentic self when I'm living under the authority of my good God, when I am transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm only my true and authentic self because I'm only living into the image of God in which I was created when the God who created me lives within me. The true and authentic self is a humble self that lays itself down for others and is defined by the love of the God who made it. Dallas Willard was once asked, Dallas Willard is a great Christian leader and philosopher and thinker and spiritual, um, uh, spiritual practice, kind of father of spiritual practices. Dallas Willard was once asked, what's a mature Christian? And you would expect them to say something like, you know, someone who reads the Bible consistently or loves people well. You, you would expect it, him to answer in some way that we, we act, that we do. And Dallas Willard said, a mature Christian is a person who's very difficult to offend. Think about it for a moment. Think about that in the context of a world that tells you to constantly be offended. If you go to the extremes on the right, you're being told to be constantly offended by the work of the left and by the anti-American whatever and by the wokeness or whatever, by the mob. You're, you're told to live in constant offense by what those people want and what they want to do. And if you go to the extreme left, it's the same story. Be offended by the right. Be offended by those people who want those policies that you don't like. Be offended all the time. And if you're not offended, you're not paying attention. Enter the mature follower of Jesus who it's nearly impossible to offend. Because the mature follower of Jesus lives in humility. They cannot assume that what they think and the way that they live is is perfect and right. The mature follower of Jesus begins their process of following Jesus by admitting, I have been wrong. I mean, the the very foundation of our faith, the the very basis of our faith is me coming to God and saying, I have been wrong. And only you are right. I have lived lies and only you are truth. I have sought power and you are the well of humility. I have harmed others and you are the restoring God. The very foundation of our faith is a humble admission. If you can't be humble, you cannot be Christian. Period. 
Jesus, the most humble man who ever walked the face of the earth, gave us his name. And when we walk in pride and offense, we slander his name. Pride broke the world and continues to break the world. And here in chapter 3 of Esther, we see how one man's pride leads to an evil decree to destroy all of God's people. One man's pride. So this is what Haman does. Haman is offended by Mordecai because he's an insecure, immature, power-grubbing little guy. He's offended by Mordecai and decides that all the Jewish people need to die. And so Haman goes to the king. Because now Haman is number two in the land. And Haman has access to the king. So Haman goes to the king and says, hey, um, your majesty, uh, there's this people group that's living in our empire. And they're really not good for us. You see, they live by their own laws. They kind of do their own thing. And they don't really support you in the empire as they should. And so I, I, th- I think we should really get rid of these people. I think at the end of the day, they're, they're harmful to you, and we should just wipe them out. And the king, because as we talked about in chapter 1, the king is a foolish, self-centered man who can't take his own advice. He can't critically think about anything. He only listens to his advisors. He says to Haman, go ahead, write up the decree. And Haman goes home and he casts lots, the pur. He casts these lots over the whole calendar. He's got a calendar in front of him, maybe written out on the ground, whatever it is. And he casts lots and he comes up uh, with a date for this decree. That on the 12th of Adar, the last month of the year, is the day that the Jewish people will be wiped out. This is, this is insane, right? You're, you're supposed to read this and go, wait, wait, that's how he picked the day? He just rolled the dice and was like, oh, that sounds like a fine day to kill a whole people group, to commit genocide. I mean, it's as good a day as any other. And it gives us plenty of time to prepare. And so Haman writes up this decree that on the 12th of Adar, all of the Jewish people are to be annihilated. And the decree is not just, hey, yo, the army is going to come and wipe out the Jews among you. The decree is to all the people to say, on this day, you take up arms and wipe out the Jews from among you. This is one man now, in his pride and arrogance and insecurity, taking his own offense and making it a law For the people of the empire. It's not enough that he experienced offense at Mordecai. It's not enough that he chose to take vengeance upon a whole people group. Now he's trying to force the entire empire to take up his grievance with the Jewish people. This is the sickness of Haman and this is the sickness of pride. This is the sickness of of arrogance. Pride doesn't just stop with me. When my world revolves around me, I got to get you involved in it too. I got to do what I can to extract the respect I expect from you. I got to do what I can to bring you aboard. Pride evangelizes. Only pride doesn't have any good news to share. It's all the bad news of me. Arrogance is all about the bad news of me. 
It's me trying to get you on board with whatever my intentions are and my purposes are and whatever I want. That's what arrogance will do. It loves to evangelize the bad news of my power and my influence. And that's exactly what Haman has done. Use the power of the empire to now force the people into his vendetta based on a slight offense. Now, this is, this is silly, right? This is kind of ridiculous. It's kind of amazing that Haman would go this far. And yet, when Jesus comes to earth, he says, beware you who say you fool to another person. You're in danger of hellfire. He says, if you've ever hated someone in your heart, you've murdered them. Haman's outward actions are ridiculous, and none of us would ever find ourselves in the place of doing this. And yet, we are tempted day in and day out to murder whole groups of people in our hearts. We are tempted day in and day out by an outraged culture, by an offended culture, to murder entire groups of people in our hearts, to dismiss them, to push them aside, to look at anyone who opposes us in any way and assume the worst of them, to hate them. And the message of Jesus is exactly the opposite. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemy is the message of Jesus in the moments when we feel hated. So what do we do? The people of God here in chapter 3 of Esther are in a very dark place. It ends, the chapter ends by saying the decree went out and all of Susa was confused. Why are we being told to do this? What, what happened? Why on earth? And that's not just the Jewish people of Susa. That's the whole capital city. That's everybody who got the decree was like, what, 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 what's going on? Why? Okay, well, it's from the king. I guess that's good enough. Everyone was confused. And you've got to imagine the people of God, the Jewish people who received this decree, and now they can count the months They can count the days until the decree goes into effect. This is a dark place to be. This is as dark as it gets. My execution date has been set, and I don't even know what I did. I can look out at the calendar, and I can see the day that has been appointed for my destruction. What do you do then? You don't have any power. I mean, the power differential here between the king of Persia and your average Jew on the street is so wide, so big, that there's nothing you can do. You have to live in the dark. You have to live with this decree over your head. What what are you going to do? What did Jesus do in these moments? Jesus knew well in advance that he was going to a cross. Jesus knew well in advance how his life would end. And he told his closest followers, 
what was going to happen. And yeah, he knew there was a resurrection on the other side. But that didn't stop the darkness and the pain of the crucifixion. It's not always enough to say, well, we've got heaven waiting for us. That doesn't change the pain of the here and now, does it? Oh, it's true. And it gives us a lasting hope. And with the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, constantly drawing our attention to Jesus and to heaven, we can endure things that are unimaginable. But it doesn't change the pain. It doesn't change the darkness. What did Jesus do? On the night before he was crucified, Jesus went to a garden. And he had his closest followers with him. And he prayed. And we're told that his sweat was his drops of blood. His stress was so heavy on him. The distress of what was coming, the trauma of what was coming was so powerful and potent in him that he was sweating drops of blood. And then we see Jesus take up his cross, literally, and walk to the hill of Golgotha and there be crucified. And on the cross, what did Jesus do? He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Before he breathed his last. Now, I want to help you think through those words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That wasn't just a cry of desperation. I don't think that was even a cry of abandonment. This was a cry of hope. Why was it a cry of hope? We got to turn to Psalm 22 to find out why this was a cry of hope. Psalm 22 begins, I want to read the first five verses here. Psalm 22 begins, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. And then we go on to six. I'm going to read six real quick. It's not going to be on the screen. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, this is how he felt. This is why he quotes this psalm. This is Jesus connecting himself to David who wrote this psalm. In the depths of despair, when the enemies were around him, when he couldn't see a way out, in his darkness and in the pit that he was in, David wrote these words. And Jesus, connecting his own situation to that of David's, said, this is dark. You don't see a way out. It looks like I'm in a pit and there's no way home. It looks like deliverance will not come and God will fail in his promises. That's what the cross looks like even from Jesus hanging on it. 
This is what's going on in his heart. This is what's going on in his mind. This is what's happening within his body as he's enduring the greatest pain any human has ever endured because it wasn't just a crucifixion. He was in that moment bearing the sin of the world, bearing yours and mine and feeling every weight of guilt and condemnation that comes with it. And Jesus looked to his father And he quoted the Psalm of David to say, this is how I feel right now. And to us, this is how it looks right now. This is where I am. Psalm 22 was not a song of David. It is a prayer of Jesus. As all the Psalms are. When we turn to the Psalms, when we turn to the songbook of God We're not just singing songs written by someone thousands of years ago. We're not just praying prayers written by some person 2,000 years ago. We're praying the prayers of Jesus. We're singing the songs authored by our God. When we pray them and we sing them, we are praying and singing with our Lord Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith and the very Word of God, living and active. And so Jesus quotes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But when he does that, he wants the psalm, the whole psalm to come to your mind. You see, when Jesus was growing up, the psalms were the songbook. You went to synagogue, you sang the psalms. You were out working in the fields, you sang the psalms. You were hanging out, having a meal, you sang a psalm. You were going to a festival, you sang the Psalms. Chances are that in Jesus' time and place, any faithful Jew would have the entire book of Psalms memorized. The same way that you have your favorite songs memorized. The same way that you can hear a song from 40 years ago that you hadn't heard in a decade and still sing along with it. Because it's in your heart, because it's worked its way into who you are. This is the way the book of Psalms worked for Jesus And for his people. So when Jesus quotes Psalm 22 and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He expects every Jewish person within the sound of his voice to know that song. And to know the depths of David's despair. But he also expects them to know the end of that song. He expects them to know where it's going. And so we pick up in verse 19. But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength come quickly to help me. Rescue my life from the sword, my only life from the power of those dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of wild oxen. This is the plea of the psalmist. And then, gloriously, we see a turn. You answered me. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him. For he has not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. I will give praise in the great assembly because of you. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. 
All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations. All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him, even the one who cannot preserve his life. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people yet to be born. They will declare what he has done. This is the word of the Lord. These are the words that ran through Jesus' mind as he hung on the cross. And these were the words that he wanted his hearers to pull up. That in the moments of their darkest despair, God had never let them down. In the moments of their deepest pain, God has always shown up. That when it looked like things were over, when it looked like things were done, when it looked like we were never getting out of Egypt, when it looked like the light would never dawn again, when it looked like we were stuck and we were in a pit and we were never coming out. When Joseph was down in the pit waiting to be saved and rescued and it looked like he would never come out, God was faithful. Over and over and over and over again, God was faithful. And God always will be faithful. He will not let his people down. He will not let them go to destruction. He will deliver. He will save These were the words on Jesus' mind as he hung on the cross. These were the words that were supposed to echo through his people when they looked upon his broken body. And these were the words that were supposed to lead them to celebrating the morning that he rose from the grave. We celebrate in God our Savior, even in the dark, even in the brokenness, even when it looks like the pit is never going to open and the light's never going to shine again. I'll go on a limb and say none of us have ever experienced the kind of darkness that the Jewish people experience in the book of Esther. And in that moment, the question of God, where are you? And God, what do you want for us? And God, where will you be? God's answer is the Psalms. The songs that he has given us to sing that give us permission to rail in our anger and to rail in our frustration and to be very real about everything that we're feeling and not to hide a thing from our God because he sees your heart more clearly than you do anyway. And to be brought to the place where we are reminded of God's faithfulness over and over and over again. Every time it looked like it was over, God came through. God delivered. God brought us through. And now, on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the empty tomb, we don't have just a promise. We don't have just words on a page. Now, on the other side of the cross... We can look and we can see the empty tomb of Jesus. We can see our Lord Jesus raised again to life. We can hear the promise of our resurrected King Jesus saying, this life is yours. This life is for you. No matter what the circumstances of life are right now, no matter how deep the pit or how dark it appears, Jesus says, I am your light and my life lives in you. It is my gift never to be taken away. For those who would follow Jesus. And so Christian, hold fast to the life that lives in you. Learn to pray with your Savior the psalms that he's given us. Learn to sing with your Savior the songs that he authored. 
Let yourself be free to express to your God whatever you are feeling and know that your God is big enough and loving enough to take it and to return to you hope and life through the resurrection power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit living within you. Let your God speak for you as you turn to his word and read and pray and sing his songs, knowing that Jesus is singing with you, that Jesus has walked the road before you, and that he has given us resurrection life even when it looks dark. That's this table. That's what we do. That's what this bread and cup remind us of. It's where it draws us back to. It draws us back to and into the life of Jesus that was broken on our behalf. The body of Christ that was broken and the blood shed to do away with our sin, to give us resurrection life living within so that a life that nothing and no one can take away, even in the moments of darkness. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the darkest night in human history, our Lord took bread and he broke it. And when he'd give it thanks, he said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, said, this is my blood of the covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Come, eat, and drink. 